0: Previously, on the Non-Toxic Fanboys.
1: Did you know Quibi did a reboot of The Fugitive? Really? The series premiered on August 3rd, 2020. Episodes are six to nine minutes long.
0: I'm picturing the radical recontextualization involved. You know, when you're on the run from the law, you're going to want to hide your IP address from people trying to track you.
1: You know, if you're on the run after being falsely accused of murder, you don't have time to make all your own meals. Who bought Quibi? If we wanted to do an episode on The Fugitive, where would we watch it?
0: I believe that Roku bought out all of the content from the defunct husk of what used to be Quibi.
1: Anyway, should we do a show? Hello listeners, welcome to the Non-Toxic Fanboys podcast, where the name is aspirational. I am Glenn Butler, and I am joined today by my brother Scott Butler to follow up on our National Film Score Day episode, where we took a weird side turn into the 2020 Quibi reboot of The Fugitive. We have now watched the show, because it's now available streaming through Roku. So Scott, just what was the deal with Quibi anyway?
0: Quibi, for anyone that hasn't been following this, it's an amazing story, but basically, Quibi was a new streaming service that was being started by Jeffrey Katzenberg, who produced a bunch of the really big Disney animated movies in the 80s and 90s, and later founded DreamWorks, and Meg Whitman, who is most famous for crashing the formerly venerated Hewlett-Packard Corporation. So it was an all-star team. Their idea was to start a streaming service structured entirely around the idea of people watching, essentially television programs, on their phones on the subway and or bus. They raised almost $2 billion to get this thing off the ground, and it lasted for about five months. They built the entire company around this idea. All of their programs were like 8 to 10 minutes long, because they didn't want to make longer programs that you wouldn't have time to watch on your subway ride. They were just quick bites of programming. They also only streamed to mobile devices. You couldn't watch Quibi on a computer. You had to watch it on a phone or a tablet or something. Until very near the end. Yeah, I think, like, during the last dying days, they finally opened it up a bit. They were also very concerned about copyright, and so they disabled any way of taking a screenshot. You know, if somebody saw something on this service that they actually fucking liked and wanted to share it with their Twitter friends, you couldn't take a screenshot of Quibi. Because the thing
1: you want to do with your platform that's made entirely for mobile devices and mobile users is to restrict mobile sharing apps.
0: The thing you want to do with trying to get a new streaming service off the ground, where the programming is largely built around celebrity stunts, that's another thing we haven't even gotten to yet, but huge chunks of their programming, huge chunks of that $2 billion investment was spent on bringing in notable celebrities to make 5-10 to minute series. They had Anna Kendrick in a series. They had Kevin Hart in a series. They did a People's Court ripoff, except instead of Judge Wapner, it was Chrissy Teigen. Wait, seriously? I never even heard of that one. Oh, Chrissy's Court hasn't made it onto your Roku device yet.
1: I I don't know. I'll have to look that up. Maybe that's our next show. <laughs>
0: But yeah, if you're building a streaming service, you're trying to get a brand new streaming service off the ground, and the way you're doing it is by having stunt celebrities do shows, the thing you want to prevent at all costs is sharing screen caps on social media. You don't want buzz about anything on your streaming service, no matter what. Well no,
1: instead all the buzz was about how spectacularly their streaming service was flaming out.
0: Well, the buzz was about how all of these things were such incredibly stupid decisions. Like, assuming there was anything on your service that actually attracted attention, why would you prevent the viral spread of screenshots that would actually attract people to check out the rest of it? Why would you restrict your viewer base to only particular devices and not other devices? Like, Quibi is trying to attract customers as quickly as possible, but you couldn't watch it on your smart TV, you couldn't watch it on your desktop computer, you couldn't watch it on your laptop computer, you could only watch it on your phone or tablet. It was so obviously a dumb decision that people were making fun of it even before the thing started, and then it flamed out in five months. Of course, it didn't help that by the time the thing really got underway, nobody was riding subways or buses anymore.
1: Yeah, Jeffrey Katzenberg, I think, mainly blames the failure of Quibi on COVID, which as we all know, was a death to streaming platforms. But in this case, every choice that was made appears to have been the worst possible choice, which is a theme we'll return to soon.
0: Yeah, COVID lockdowns caused a big boom in streaming services, but only for services you could watch on your TV or home computer. People looking for bingeable content to fill their suddenly emptier days were not looking for series whose episodes were eight minutes each. Like, seriously, the whole idea just sounds so absurd. If I want to watch something for eight minutes, there's, like, infinity videos on YouTube. then i could also watch on my smart tv or my computer or fucking anywhere i want to because youtube understands you just grab every fucking eyeball you can find
1: i mean i understand the idea of making shorter videos for the sort of people who are scrolling through their facebook feeds and are going to stop and take 30 seconds to watch a recipe video but that's in someone's social media feed they'll watch something like that on facebook they'll watch something like that on twitter because they're already there
0: there's more to this story obviously i'm just sort of skimming the surface and i haven't really researched it in any depth but yes jeffrey Katzenberg and meg whitman frittered away almost two billion dollars on this idea and made like every single wrong decision on the way which I guess is probably required if you want to fritter away $2 billion in five months. <laughs> so yes, that was Quibby. This came up when we were recording our most recent National Film Score Day show, looking back at the streaming landscape of 2020, and both of us, I think, were... Uh, Intrigued isn't really the right word. No, not quite. Is there a word for something that is intriguing despite being entirely uninteresting? Clickbait. I think that's called clickbait. We were clickbaited when we discovered that part of this Quibi streaming service, in addition to Judge Chrissy and some damn Kevin Hart show, it also included a reboot of The Fugitive, told in eight-minute episodes.
1: With Kiefer Sutherland speaking of celebrity stunt casting.
0: I don't know that Kiefer Sutherland is quite the sort of celebrity stunt casting of Anna Kendrick or Chrissy Teigen, but yes, Kiefer Sutherland stars in the Tommy Lee Jones role. Well, Kiefer Sutherland is hunting down criminals. So, you know,
1: did you like 24? We have a streaming service.
0: Did you like 24? Now it's like one in three quarters. <laughs>
1: Did you like 24? Now it comes in 5-minute chunks.
0: But yes, once once we learned of the existence of a fugitive reboot television series told in 6 to 8-minute episodes, we were clickbaited. We weren't necessarily interested, I wouldn't say we were intrigued, but we were definitely clickbaited. And at the time we were recording that show, Roku had already bought out all of the leftover content from the hollowed-out husk of what was once intended to be Quibi. And just recently, they finally started putting that up on their Roku channel, and so Glenn and I have indeed watched all fourteen minute episodes of the Quibi The Fugitive series. And we are here to review it for you, our dear listeners. We hope you'll be as clickbaited as we were.
1: (laughs) Now, we usually eschew our non spoiler section when we're this late to reviewing something. But of course, what we've been saying is that nobody watched Quibi. So, for people who only have it available to them now that it's on Roku, do you think this is worth watching?
0: It's worth watching as. No, it's not. It's not worth watching
1: that was going to be my rejoinder
0: (laughs) it can potentially be worth watching if what you're looking for is a cultural artifact of the thing that was supposed to be quibi if you want to see all of the reasons that quibi was a terrible terrible idea concentrated down into an hour and 45 minutes i think this series is a very good example if that sort of post-mortem schadenfreude of Quibi does not appeal to you, then no, there is no reason whatsoever that this show is worth watching. It's not original in any way. It's not entertaining. It somehow manages to feel very quick and fast-paced while also feeling interminable at times. It's got stuff in it that just seems like it's thrown in out of nowhere because they didn't have time in last week's 8-minute episode to introduce it properly. The story doesn't really hang together at all. The logical consequences of people's actions are just ignored. I would not recommend this show to anyone for any reason other than if they're just curious to see what the fuck is a drama on Quibi. Sure,
1: as more of an archaeological, cultural artifact, I suppose. I think that would be the only interest that someone might take in this. Though maybe I shouldn't say only. There are people who have very different tastes from me. There are people who liked this show. I saw their reviews, a few of them at least. There are probably people who have a lot more patience for cop shows and for suspense shows than I do, and who didn't mind the pacing weirdness as much. I mean, it has to build to some cliffhanger every five to nine minutes, like you say, which standard TV shows have to do anyway for commercial breaks, but it feels even more broken up than that, and because of the short length of everything Pretty much all of the characters are stock characters, and a lot of them aren't even stock characters from The Fugitive.
0: (laughs) I was a bit turned off by the absence of a Dr. Richard Kimball.
1: Yeah, it's not about Richard Kimball. His wife hasn't been killed. The only resemblance it really has to The Fugitive is that there's a fugitive.
0: Yeah, there's a guy who's accused of something he didn't do, and that's about the only commonality. He's not accused of killing his wife, he isn't falsely convicted. For most of the series, he isn't hunting down the real killer because he doesn't know who the real killer is. It's, like, very tangentially related to the core idea of previous versions of The Fugitive. I'm not sure why this is tied to the IP.
1: Well, no, yeah, I am. It's clickbait. There are some echoes of the 1993 movie, at least, that may be a little unnecessary. Some of them may be a little strange. Let's move into the spoiler segment.
0: I like how we started off by saying this was too old to do a non-spoiler segment, and then we just did a non-spoiler segment that's, like, miles longer than anything we did for WandaVision or Falcon and Winter Soldier.
1: Yeah, well, here's our non-spoiler segment. You don't need to bother.
0: But we hope you'll bother to listen to the rest of this episode.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Please. (laughs) So the show basically starts with a subway train getting blown up. In almost like a Stations of the Fugitive with the train derailment in the 93 movie, there's a whole scene where not-Dr. Richard Kimball has to put on a to-us-not-very-convincing disguise. It would have been even more of the Stations of the Fugitive if he had had to shave for it, but I get it. There's the cop who's after, not Dr. Richard Kimball, who has a southern accent for no reason that I can tell other than Tommy Lee Jones had an accent in the movie and everyone likes the movie. Is that where
0: that came from? The accent was terrible, by the way. It kind of would come and go. And he was doing some sort of other vocal affectation that, like, at times he sounded like he was playing, like, a stroke victim or somebody with some sort of palsy. It was just, it was weird.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that was another character note or how exactly that happened.
0: Like, I checked around online to see, you know, did Kiefer Sutherland suffer some sort of medical problem? Like, is is there a reason his voice sounds like that? But apparently, no, it was just a character choice.
1: Yeah, does Kiefer Sutherland have a speech impediment that would make this entire segment of our show in very poor taste?
0: The best of my Googling suggests no. It was just a character choice. Right. Also, Kiefer Sutherland's character, his wife died in the September 11th attacks, and so now that there's a bombing of the subway in Los Angeles, he's too emotionally invested, and can he stay fair and impartial? You know, like the LAPD always is? Oh, God. Yeah, that's the thing.
1: There are characters who keep asking Kiefer Sutherland's character if he can handle this investigation because it's a terrorism investigation. He works in the counterterrorism division. He's been doing this for 20 years since his wife died.
0: Yes, he's been doing this for the entirety of the 20 years since his wife died, since there's a scene at the end where some of his underlings point out, you haven't taken a day off since your wife died. He's apparently worked for the last 6,700 days consecutively, ever since the September 11th attacks.
1: And you know no one let him carry over all that vacation time.
0: This is a related question, and it's probably something we can do away with quickly. I was very confused about when this show was set. Because, like... The line that you haven't taken a day off since your wife died would suggest this is a hell of a lot closer to 2001 than, like, 2020 when it was airing. And also, the computer that not Richard Kimball uses to look up information about the guy that he thinks may be the real killer, that computer was, like, straight out of 1998. It's like a beige desktop. That thing's gotta be, like, a Pentium 3 at best. That computer
1: was pretty old, but I don't think the show was meant to be a period piece at all.
0: Well, no, because the whole thing is also about online tabloid journalism and muckraking reporters who tweet out things without checking if they're true.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's the whole plot line where the producers appear to be focusing on, you know, millennials, they love Twitter. I kept getting thrown out of that plotline because, number one, they named the journalist Pretty Patel, who is the Home Secretary of the United Kingdom. Um, really? Yes. Oh, wow. And she was played by Tia Surkar, who was on The Good Place, and was fabulous on The Good Place, and is not good here. Because she has so little
0: to work with. Is anybody any good here? No! Each episode is the length of a decent scene in another
1: show. I don't know if it's inherent to the mechanics of the show and the time limits of the show, because lots of people produce great short films and series of short films, and there's all sorts of really short, really fabulous media that you can find online, since so many of us are extremely online. But the way that this show is made and is structured, no one has anything good to work with. Like I say, everything is given such short shrift that all of the characters are stock characters.
0: Even the way the show looks is pretty bad. You could tell just by watching it that they didn't take the time or care in the processing of the video or the color timing or whatever to make it look really high quality. Everything looks over-sharpened, it looks really blown out. Like, I watch a lot of YouTube channels that have way better video production quality than this series did. It looks like it was shot on somebody's three-year-old smartphone camera. Which is something that you
1: might expect a new short-form streaming platform to use, but not one financed by $2 billion and Jeffrey Katzenberg. But worse than the cinematography and the basic format of the thing, I think, is the writing.
0: Well, it depends how you mean that. The writing is very formulaic, paint-by-numbers, character has to be here so we get the character here. What I mean is
1: that at every point in time over the plot of this show, every character makes the worst possible choice they can make in any moment.
0: That's the other aspect I was going to mention, yes. All of the character decisions are nonsensical and counterintuitive and counterproductive. The not Richard Kimball character spends the entire series trying to gather evidence of, like, who the actual perpetrator of these bombings is, and never once does it occur to him, like... Let me give this evidence to the police. I have all this evidence. I know who the guy is. He goes through this ridiculous roundabout Hansel and Gretel thing to try to lead the police to the actual guy when he could just go to the police and say, here, here's the actual guy. At every point, he makes the entirely wrong decision. As soon as people like start to suspect him because some random reporter tweeted his name, never at any point does he act in any way that would make anyone think he wasn't incredibly guilty like the very first thing he does when he's first suspected is to run away and run back into the subway that's been closed down after the bombing
1: yeah he doesn't just run he runs into the
0: subway a very restricted environment he steals a subway car he he! very nearly kills the cop that's chasing him when he detaches the rest of the subway cars from the driver's cabin. Exactly. And then later, when Kiefer Sutherland catches up with him, he pistol-whips Kiefer Sutherland, knocks him unconscious, and steals his gun. Like, even if you didn't do the bombing, now you've stolen a subway car, pistol-whipped a cop, and stolen his gun. And then over the next, you know hour or so that's left after that he robs a convenience store stabs the clerk suddenly makes friends with a gang leader and tries to blackmail the gang leader into helping him investigate the crime or something he makes his wife into an accomplice in his crime spree as he flees from suspicion. He makes the wife of one of the victims of the subway bombing into an accomplice in his crime spree. He commits probably 30 to 40 years worth of sentencing minimums worth of crimes while he's on parole, while he's on parole for another crime in the course of proving he didn't commit the bombing. And they don't address any of that. At one point, Kiefer Sutherland and his band of cops just sort of go, oh, he didn't do it. Okay, and move on. And they don't address, oh, by the way, he robbed a convenience store, he stabbed a guy, he pistol-whipped the police inspector, he stole a cop's gun, he stole a subway car, he broke into city records to look up information about the guy that turned out to be the real bomber. None of that gets addressed in any way whatsoever. It's just, oh, he didn't do it. Okay, that's the end. Yeah. At every point in
1: time, he does the most incriminating thing possible. And there are ways to make a compelling story in which people do incriminating things in the course of vindicating themselves. Such as in The Fugitive,
0: maybe. But this show doesn't do that. This show is very much, look, we've got six minutes to get a character to hear. Let's just, he's just gonna go there. We don't have time to figure out why. At one point, he starts conspiring with the wife of his parole officer, who was also his friend. He was, like, a friendly parole officer, and he died in the subway bombing. And he goes to the parole officer's wife, who is a public defender, and gets her to look up, like, trial records for him to help prove that the real bomber is the real bomber. And at no point does he say to her, you know... You're a public defender, you work in the courts, you can take this evidence to the police. At no point does that come up. She steals the records and just gives them to him, rather than showing them to anybody in authority.
1: More and more over the course of the show, I kept getting the feeling that we've talked about off of the podcast many times about many different things. And that's the feeling of secondhand embarrassment, vicarious embarrassment. The Germans call it Fremdschaft, which I greatly appreciate.
0: I described it in my notes as recognizing all of the terrible ideas the character is about to enact, recognizing all of the ways that all of this will inevitably go terribly, terribly wrong, and yet having to watch them do it anyway.
1: Yeah, it's personal embarrassment about other people doing things that are embarrassing or that should be
0: i guess a really mild version of it would be the people that yell at the horror movie no don't run upstairs you'll be trapped there it's kind of that feeling but less terror and more just like incredible incredible cringe Yeah, it's more of a cringy feeling, and some people are more sensitive to that
1: than others. I'm quite sensitive to it. I think you're even more sensitive to it than I am. Yeah, I get that really bad. I mean, you you just straight up stop watching things.
0: I'm particularly susceptible to it when a character starts telling a lie, and it's an incredibly stupid and easily falsified lie. Like, there's a point in season three of Star Trek Discovery, I watched the first few episodes of that season before I got derailed, because they got to a point where they started telling this lie to explain their situation because they didn't want to reveal all of the truth right then. Except it was like the dumbest and most obviously false thing that they could have come up with. When, like, all they had to do was tell about 80% of the truth and they could have kept the secret they wanted to keep and still had, like, a completely plausible explanation for everything. And I just watched the scene where they're about to tell this incredibly stupid and obviously false lie, and I just I paused the show right there. And then I didn't go back to it for, like, months. Because every time I went to go resume, it's like, oh, they're about to do that. Uh, and then, I, then I'd go do something else for another month or two. And that's why I haven't finished watching Discovery Season 3 yet. That incredible, cringy feeling of you're going to be exposed in moments. Don't do this. Is there a German word for that?
1: Probably, but I'm not as fluent in German as I'd like to
0: be. I think for now, Fremdschaft will do. But yeah, there's a lot of that in this show. Like, as soon as people start to suspect him, he immediately runs. When the cops catch up with him, he, like, he could just explain, listen, I didn't do it, you can, like, you know, investigate me and you'll see there's no evidence that I actually did this. Instead, he steals the cop's gun and pistol whips him with it. While he's on the run, he decides to rob a convenience store and stab the clerk. He's trying to hide from the police, and so the thing he does is call his daughter's school, and then call his wife who is currently in police custody as part of the investigation against him? I mean,
1: there are elements of it that make more sense than others. You don't go to the cops as your first option because you can't trust the cops. Yeah, but when the cops corner you, you don't, like... You don't assault them and pistol-whip them as your first option, as your
0: first and only idea. That's not going to help you get off the hook. No matter how much you distrust the police, stealing their gun and pistol-whipping them with it is not going to help you prove your innocence.
1: Yeah, and as you say, when the end of the show comes and he's exonerated of one crime and they let him go for all of the others, this is when the series tips into high fantasy.
0: Like, even if the cop decides, okay, I understand, you were scared, you didn't do it, even if there was this imaginary fictional cop who was willing to excuse an assault on him, what about the convenience store clerk he stabbed? (laughs) And at at the same time, like, okay, I understand you're nervous about going to the cops, you think you'll just be railroaded, but, like, you just had a lawyer gather a bunch of evidence for you. They could present that to the cops. You don't have to go anywhere near them.
1: Yeah, somehow he managed to get someone with some credibility on his side.
0: And at no point in any of their interactions did the idea ever come up. The person with credibility could pass the evidence over. She didn't even have to vouch for him. All she had to do was say, here's some records. Look at this. But at no point was that option ever discussed.
1: Yes, it's frustrating.
0: And that's what makes the show
1: feel long, even when it's not.
0: Also, throughout the show, every time, like, a cop car passes him, like, a block and a half away, he immediately starts sprinting away from it. Like, way to not look suspicious, dude. The most famous image from the
1: original Fugitive TV show or at least the one that springs to mind for me, is the very end of the series when he's finally exonerated and he's walking away and a police car drives by and for a second he has that panic reaction and then he relaxes because he's finally vindicated, he's finally exonerated, he can go on with his life. And whenever the cop cars drove by and he immediately panicked and ran away and in most cases assaulted someone else, I thought at least they can have that be echoed
0: in that final image. And then they didn't even do it. No, the final scene of the show is him confronting the tabloid that named him as a suspect and, like, making them write checks to other people for him.
1: Yeah, that's the final bit of the show going out of its way to make not-Dr. Richard Kimball as virtuous as they possibly can. I mean, his backstory is that the crime that he was convicted of in the first place was killing someone in a DUI accident. And then, what was it, 10 or 11 episodes in, there are a couple of flashbacks to establish that he wasn't even driving in that accident. So he's entirely blameless, actually, it turns out. He may make the worst decision possible every time he has a decision to make in the show, but in his backstory, nah, he actually didn't. He was okay on that one.
0: I don't know. I'd say if you're drunk at a bar, I'd say going outside and taking a nap in your parked car outside the bar is also not the best decision.
1: I mean, on a sliding scale from actively driving drunk to, I guess, what, calling a cab instead? I'd put it toward the positive end of that spectrum.
0: If a cop happened to come by that bar and found a guy passed out drunk in his car, that's not going to go good for him. In the show, he says he was in the passenger seat, so he wasn't even sitting in the driver's seat. I'm pretty sure if you're passed out drunk in the driver's seat, even if the car's not on, they can still charge you with a DUI.
1: In the flashback, his brother tries to take his keys, too, so he could have let him have them, but he was drunk, too. But yeah, it's bad decisions all the way down, except possibly that one. Not the worst possible.
0: Okay, I'll, it's not the worst possible decision. It's still kind of stupid. Okay. But I'll agree, it's not as terrible a decision as pistol-whipping a cop or stabbing a convenience store cork. Or the scene where he decides to blackmail a gang into giving him one of their guns? Yes. (laughs) Which is both something that just sort of falls out of the sky with absolutely no buildup or hinting at beforehand. And also, like, what's the point of that? Now when you're caught, you're going to be carrying a gun that was previously used in who knows how many crimes? I agree that it is a very poor life choice. You
1: know, sometimes you wind up in situations that ought to cause some introspection about the choices that have brought you to this pass. And there are some people in life, I've met a few, you probably have too, who for some reason or another, whether their fault or not, are somehow always in crisis. And if you happen to make very poor decisions in crisis, then every crisis is worse. Especially when, apparently, you got involved with gangs when you were in jail.
0: We've been concentrating on how the not-Dr. Richard Kimball always makes terrible, terrible decisions. We should also talk about how the other characters also always make terrible, terrible decisions.
1: (laughs) Should we? Can we run down a list of everything they do?
0: Well, they sort of do the thing we talked about in the Marvel shows. We talked about in WandaVision how the protagonist was doing things that were so horrific that they had to make the antagonists even worse to make sure we still sided with Wanda. And then in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, it seems like they got to a particular point in the script and realized that the Flag Smashers were too sympathetic, and so they had Carly just murder a bunch of warehouse workers just to make sure we knew they were the villains and nobody would sympathize with them. They do that sort of thing in this show where the not-Dr. Richard Kimball makes so many terrible, terrible decisions that nobody could ever sympathize or root for him. Like, it doesn't make you want to root for somebody when you see somebody make that many stupid decisions in such a short period of time. It just makes you want to end the misery of having to watch them make those decisions. So then at some point they realize, hey, nobody's going to be sympathizing with our protagonist because they keep making the absolute worst possible decision at every interval. And so they spend a couple of episodes having Kiefer Sutherland suddenly become, like, hyper-fixated on this one suspect. At one point he tells one of his underlings, like, if you ever mention again the possibility that this guy isn't the one who did it, I'll make sure you never work for the police again. He punches an FBI agent who's trying to take a piece of evidence for testing in the federal lab. He's abusive towards his underlings for about three episodes. You know, just to make sure that we know who the even worse person is than the protagonist that we have no sympathy for. And then at some point, they just like completely reverse that because they have to have Kiefer Sutherland realize, oh, the guy didn't do it. Therefore, I'm going to ignore the part where he pistol-whipped me and stabbed the convenience store clerk. All of that's water under the bridge. Uh, I'm not going to
1: fault a show for portraying cops in a bad light.
0: Well, there was one point where, after he steals Kiefer Sutherland's gun... Kiefer Sutherland makes the announcement that he already pistol whipped one cop, and now he has a gun. This guy is extremely violent and dangerous. He should be shot on sight. And I did have the moment where I was like, as opposed to what the LAPD normally does?
1: Or or a lot of PDs. Yes.
0: But yeah, it definitely did feel like they got to a point where they're like, oh, we've made Kiefer Sutherland too much of like a straight-ahead, hard-ass police commander stock character. People are going to sympathize with him. Let's make him an incredibly over-the-top asshole who's ignoring evidence. That way we can get the sympathy back with our protagonist. And they did that for about three or four episodes before they had to have Kiefer Sutherland have a complete change of heart to build toward the finale.
1: I mean... There are some tensions that you're going to run into when you're telling a story about the titular fugitive in a culture as ruthlessly dedicated to bootlicking as is ours. So, there are ways that it's going to be hard to kind of manage the portrayals there.
0: As much as we harp on all the terrible, terrible decisions that not Richard Kimball is making... We should also note that everybody who helps him along the way is also making a terrible, terrible decision. Like his wife who makes a fraudulent phone call from inside the prison interview room to help him sneak into the city archives, and the widow of his friend the parole officer who steals records for him. All of them are making terrible, terrible decisions to help him enact his terrible, terrible decisions. They do go all the way down, yes. And that's just
1: something else that lends to the sense of fremdschaft, Like the continuous... Cringe is another very good word for it, yeah. That just gets very uncomfortable.
0: Okay, I think we've covered that particular aspect of the story enough. I would say let's move on to other aspects of the story, but... There aren't any. Yeah, there really weren't any. Not really. No, well, we don't have time for subplots. Oh, there were plenty of subplots. They just were perfunctory and were sort of stock subplots enacted by stock characters. You know, he had a bad relationship with his daughter, who didn't trust him after he'd been in prison, and then he gets accused of this crime, and now the daughter loves him again. Well, then
1: the daughter gets briefly abducted before a guy gets shot right in front of her, and then she loves him again
0: before a second guy gets shot right in front of her because the abductor shot the person who was with her at first and then the cops come and shoot the abductor oh that girl is going to be in therapy for a decade yeah ex- exactly
1: it's trauma all the way down as well i think that's something we've uh, covered in our last several episodes
0: oh i forgot the carjacking yeah okay That's how he gets to the school to try to stop his daughter from being abducted by the real bombers. He carjacks a guy's pickup truck. I forgot that on the list of other crimes that are completely ignored at the end because it turns out he didn't do the bombing. So... (laughs) Well, this is the part of the show when we would move on to reviewing the score. The score to this series was written by Tony Morales and... I don't remember a single note of it other than stingers at the end of each episode. We would still normally listen to it and give it a review, except as far as I've been able to tell, none of the Quibi series ever got a commercial release of the score. Which, you know, is sort of disappointing to me and my interests. That doesn't endear me to this new service at all. I kind of hope they go out of business now.
1: Well, have I got news for you. In summary, I think we've hit the main descriptors for the show. Perfunctory, uncomfortable, cringe, and most of all, fremdschaft.
0: I don't know how many of those apply to Quibi as a whole, but I get the feeling that several of them do. Like, I think whoever the friend group is that Jeffrey Katzenberg was, like, having beers with and said, Listen, we're going to lock it down so that you can't watch it on TVs or on computers. You can only watch it on your phone. I have a feeling those friends hearing that were experiencing some friend And
1: maybe should have taken his keys. Well, just so everyone knows... We are not going to proceed to review Die Heart, the Kevin Hart show featured on Quibi.
0: What about Judge Chrissy Teigen? Unlikely.
1: Although, if someone joins our Patreon and requests it, we might consider
0: it. Well, I mean, we do have that Patreon tier, if there's something you really want us to look at. So if you really passionately want us
1: to review Judge Chrissy Teigen... Should it appear on the Roku channel? I haven't actually looked yet. We do have our patron tier for that. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can find us at NontoxicFanboys on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at nontoxicfanboys at gmail.com or visit our website at nontoxicfanboys.com. We also stream video games every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash nontoxicfanboys. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash nontoxicfanboys. My other podcast is called Feeling Good for Now and features nuggets of positivity as well as spectacular advice in response to listener questions. You can find that at bit.ly goodfornow, and please send any and all advice questions to spectacular at gmail.com. The theme music to this podcast is Discovery by Alexander Nakarada. Details are in the episode description. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. Nobody needs me. What I really want is that goddamn phone!
0: Less than an hour. That's practically quibby length for us.